chapter 10, and we are going to continue, really, the, the, the thought that Jesus has been delivering this whole time. And we will, in fact, next week we'll continue to see the same, the same truths built upon. And if there was a key word to pay attention to this week, as last week the key word was persecution, then the, the word this week would be fear. Do not fear. Specifically, do not be afraid. Jesus has been upfront and honest about this kind of reception that His apostles are going to encounter. In the previous instruction, as I mentioned, He told them to beware of persecution that would come from all fronts and from all kinds of places and really all kinds of people. We saw state persecution and, and uh, church persecution and even from their homes and even has more to say about that in the family uh, dynamic as he continues in his in his message here naturally the human response after hearing of all of these dangers is to be afraid you know if he's talking about being killed he's talking about being dragged before governors and kings he's talking about being uh chased from town to town. They're not living in peace, right? As we sang about many times today. There's no comfort here. There's a lot of uncertainty and even some distrust with the dangers that could come from all of these different places. It's very very easy for the disciples to become a very cynical, very suspicious group of people, very opposite of the dove-like innocence that He has told them to, to take on. But fear of men is not a quality for the followers of Jesus, then or now. Over and over throughout the New Testament, we read the command, do not be afraid. Jesus appeared to His disciples in ways that terrified them. One of the first commands, do not be afraid. When the angels announced Jesus' birth, the first words out of their mouth, don't fear. Because fear is a real part of our reality. Steve's bringing me some water. I'm, thank you very much. Trusting that Steve did not stir it with his finger or something. Else. No fear. Thank you. Fear is a very powerful and real issue in life, regardless of the generation that we live in. It takes about 10, 10 seconds on the news scrolling through Facebook or Twitter, looking at current events all over the world, and fear is just a, a natural part of life. For some, more than others, unless you are completely oblivious to whatever is happening in the world around you, fear is a real challenge. It's something that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Jesus knows this. Our Savior experienced life in our shoes. He lived like us. He lived among us. And He knows what it's like to face these types of dangers. He knows what it's like to confront these, this type of opposition. In, in, in many ways, especially in our, in our respects, He knows what it's, what it's like and worse. Many of us do not fear for our lives. The twelve disciples are no different in, in, in that aspect. They're not superhuman. They were given special abilities to heal and to uh, cast out demons and to resurrect the dead and things, but they were not 
given some supernatural uh, inability to be afraid. Some uh, boldness that just said, I'm, I'm not afraid of anything. They were definitely still susceptible to that emotion. And Jesus in His compassion then did not send them out with just this warning of persecution and the command to endure. As we looked at last week, He said towards the end of, of our passage last week, He said, um, he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone uh, through all the uh, through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I didn't read the verse I meant to. At the beginning of before that, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Enduring, guys. Don't you're going to be persecuted, but endure. Don't quit. But he but he he doesn't leave them with just that. Hey guys, it's going to be tough, but don't quit. Suck it up. Be a man. Get out there and do it. Because what they're going to face is real, and it's real scary. And it's real uh, difficult to process in your brains. I'm going to go out as sheep among wolves. I'm going to go out with no weapons, just a message. And it's a message that, from my perspective, nobody should be against Christianity. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about love and hope and peace and forgiveness. And, 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 and to me, it doesn't make sense uh, from my perspective, to see why are Christians persecuted because if we live as the Bible teaches us to live, we live with at peace with people. We live making no offense with other people. And when we do, we are taught to forgive and ask for forgiveness. And, and we're taught to, to, to confess our faults and, and, to, and to live in such a way that, that, we, that we don't ruffle people's feathers. Yes, the message that we preach is uh, a bit disturbing to those who will not receive it, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to to see Christians being persecuted, and that's exactly what we see. But Jesus sees that, and as I said, He doesn't send them out with just this warning and the command to endure. He sends them with some extra things here. And what He does is He He lists three common fears in our passage today, and then with those common fears, He gives three reasons why they don't need to be afraid of those things, those three items here that, that should cause fear. He says you don't need to be afraid of these things. But then he doesn't just say you don't need to be afraid. He says instead of being afraid, he gives them three responses, counter reactions, if you will, to this natural response. Because fear, at the very least, is going to hinder their mission, but at the very most, it's going to stop it altogether. If I'm afraid, I'm going to stop. I'm going to freeze. I'm going to be paralyzed. I'm going to turn around and run the other way. I'm not going to keep pressing forward at the very worst. But at the very least, that fear will do is that it, it slows the mission down. When I walk through uh, when I, a, 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 a hallway that is fully lit and, 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 and I've been down a hundred times, I don't watch out for scary things and people to jump out at me, but you turn that the lights off and walk through that same hallway and all of a sudden you slow down just a little bit. If you've ever been in this church at night, you know what I'm talking about. You walk down in the fellowship hall at 10 o'clock at night and all the lights are off and you start to hear things that you did not hear uh, last time you were down there. And uh, every church is, is spooky in that way. Uh, I, and I, and I have, I've lived in, you know, basically lived in church all my life and um, there's some pretty scary things. But right now, none of us are afraid. If we hear some weird sound, we say, oh, well, that's the, the walls creaking, it's the boiler or whatever it may be. But be here all by yourself and all of a sudden, you, oh, what was that? Someone else is here. And it's fear and it causes you to even walk down a hallway a little differently than you did without fear. 
And so let's, I want to show you these three fears and then the three uh, reasons why they do not need to fear and then the three responses that Jesus says uh, that we are to have. So if you'll look uh, beginning in verse number 24. First of all, Jesus reminds them of who they are and uh, who's really in charge here. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. What he's saying here is he's like, boys, you're going out and you're representing me. You are my disciples. I am the Lord of the harvest, and I am sending you into the harvest, into my field. So recognize who you are. Don't forget whom you are representing. You don't go in your own name or power. And so then, whatever I have faced as the Lord, you can expect to face. And that's enough for you. Notice that he says there at the next verse, in verse 25, that it is enough for the disciple to be like his master. Be like it's enough. That's all you can expect. Don't expect anything differently than what you've seen me experience. And they've been with Jesus long enough to see just a little bit, get a little taste of what he is going, what he's talking about. And it's only going to increase from here. Whatever dangers and difficulties I encounter, Jesus says, you can expect to meet as well. And in these two verses here, we see three relationships that he mentions right away. The first two are kind of easy to see. The third one is a little bit uh, less. But each of these three relationships describe a different aspect of their relationship with Christ. Notice there he says that there's a disciple and a teacher relationship. The disciple is not above his teacher. The student is not above his teacher. Emphasizing there that their need to learn from Jesus. That's what a disciple is. It is a, it is a learner. It is a follower of his teaching and uh, they need to learn. Then there's a servant master relationship. And this emphasizes that unquestioned obedience. If you're the servant, literally the slave, you don't say, well, let's talk about this. Master, you told me to do this, but let's weigh the options here. You don't have options. You're a servant. You just do what you're told to do. You do as you're instructed and it's this un, questioned obedience and loyalty to the master. Philo was a a, a first century Jewish philosopher and he wrote this. He said, to be the slave of God is the highest boast of man, a treasure more precious than not only than freedom, but than wealth and power and all that mortals most cherish. In verse 25, we see the third relationship and that is uh, where Jesus is the master of the house and his disciples are the members of the household. If you look down there, you can see it there. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? They are the family here. This aspect, this family aspect here. Jesus is the patriarch. He is the head of the household. And we and they as his followers are simply members of the household and they follow his lead. And so immediately after describing the dangers that these men are going to face, Jesus reminded them of their relationship to Him and the Father. Remember who you are. You're going out and it's going to be dangerous. First, remember who you are and remember who I am. You are the disciple. I am the teacher. You are the servant. I am the master. You are just a member of the household, but I am the head of the household. This is what uh, He sends them out with. And, and they're not above facing whatever the Lord faced. They're not above facing whatever the teacher faced. If the teacher faced persecution from this angle, they can expect that too. 
they can expect uh, to face the, the same rejection and shame and opposition and all of the things that came Jesus' direction, they can expect to get that as well. And so there is a need to submit here. There's a need to submit to the Master's will regardless of what it is. How scary it might be, the Master says go, so you go. No matter how dangerous it might be, the Master sends you and so you go. And you, and as we'll see three times here, you don't go with fear. You recognize who you are. He says, be content here. Not only is there a, a need to submit to the teacher, but there's a need to emulate him as well. I like this verse. Verse 25 there, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his house? It's enough, Jesus says. It's enough for you as my disciples is my students to be like me, the teacher. There's nothing greater for you to obtain. There's nothing greater for you to desire than simply becoming like Jesus. Yeah, there are dangers. You're going to face them, but they're the same dangers your master experienced. There's difficulties, challenges that you'll face, persecution that you endure, opposition that you will meet, and all of these were experienced by the master himself. Don't expect anything different. And this persecution, as, as we saw last week, as difficult and uncomfortable as it is, and as painful as it even may get, provides you with the opportunity to be a little bit more like your master. You get to suffer in the way that he suffered. You get to serve in the way that he served. And it's, that's why it's called a fellowship. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul wrote that God's plan is for each of us to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. That's the, that's the mark, to be like Jesus and to grow in Him more and more every day. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.10, he says, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. But he, that's, that's the, the highlight. Like, okay, yes, I, I want to know Jesus. But then he goes on, he says, and may share in His sufferings. I want to know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus was very clear, as were the other New Testament writers, that to be like Jesus, to be like the Master, is the goal, or should be the goal of every Christian. But they're also very clear that that involves persecution. It involves suffering, danger, and even shame. And I believe that most of us, if not all of us, would agree. We would ask each person, do you want to be like Jesus? I think all of us would say, yeah, I want to be like Jesus. I'm supposed to want to be like, right? That's what we're Christians. But as we listen to what Jesus is saying here, if we're really paying attention to his words to the disciples, to be like the master involves hurt, suffering, rejection, persecution. So then the question we really need to ask ourselves is, do you really want to be like Jesus? Because if you're going to be like Jesus, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a little bit. It might hurt a lot. There's going to be some suffering involved. Are you willing to suffer shame for His name as the early church did? Am I willing to bear the reproach that my Master endured? Are we willing to count the cost of discipleship? And to say, it is enough 
just to be like my Savior. I want to be like Jesus. Because, friends, if we're not willing to suffer like Him, we cannot really be like Him. If we're not ready to endure persecution with Him, to take up our cross, to follow after Him. Matthew 10.38, Jesus says, you're not worthy of Me. And again, in Luke 14, Jesus says, you cannot be My disciple if you do not take up your cross. It involves suffering. It involves persecution. It involves pain. Jesus says, if you don't do that, you can't be My disciple. Following Jesus will cost. and It might hurt. So do you really want to follow Jesus? If so, be assured, it will involve persecution. It will involve suffering, difficulties. But, Jesus said, don't be afraid of it. Follow. And no, it's going to cost you something. But don't worry about it. Don't fear. Don't be anxious, he says last, last passage. And here, don't be afraid. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, there's suffering. But don't be afraid of it. And now Jesus reveals to us three reasons why we shouldn't allow fear to limit effectiveness in the mission. Specifically, how the disciples should not. But I, I think all three of these are applicable to today just as much as they were uh, then. Fear will limit their effectiveness in mission or even keep them from going at all. Notice the first one. The first fear is uh, that of being misunderstood and being unwelcome. Right back in verse 25, Jesus said that, that they, the opposition, they have insulted Him by calling Him the Master of the House Beelzebul. This name has connection to pagan deities, and it's and it's often used to refer to Satan himself. At times, there's a lot of uh, uh, dis, uh, discrepancies on how it's translated and what specifically is what these people meant by calling Jesus Beelzebul. Uh, sometimes it's translated as the Lord of the Flies. Sometimes it's translated as the Lord of the Dung. Sometimes it's translated as Lord of the Heights or even Lord of the House. What I think that is happening here is that there's a play on words uh, with the other title that Jesus used here in this verse when He says that they've called the master of the house Beelzebul. He is the head of this household, but they're calling Him the head of Satan's household. And essentially, He's being recognized not as the head of God's household, not as the Son of God, God Himself. He is accused of being the head of Satan's household. Very similar to uh, the allegation that the Pharisees made earlier about him in uh, chapter 9 when they said that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. He does this in the authority of Satan himself. That's the only reason he can do these things. And, and, and apparently this has happened before because Jesus said they have done these things. And so you can expect, how much more can you expect it if they did it to me, if they were to blaspheme the, the, the head of the household don't think that they're going to show any respect to you. And Jesus said if they were to call Him such blasphemous names, His disciples could and should expect the same thing. They wouldn't be recognized as the ambassadors of God coming to preach and deliver His message. They wouldn't see them as being sent by a loving and just God with a warning of, of, of judgment and a promise of hope in Jesus. They wouldn't say, oh, you're bringing good news, right? We, we bring the gospel. We're sharing the gospel with people. And the word gospel means good news. But oftentimes, people don't receive it as good news. 
they, they reject it. They push against it. They don't see it as the good news that it really is. They see it as heresy. They see it as blasphemy. They see it as, 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 as all kinds of, of, of fear and hate when really that's the exact opposite of what we're trying to bring. They would blaspheme these men and accuse them of being, heres- of being heretics. Specifically, throughout the book of Acts in the New Testament, we see these messengers of hope being considered a danger to society, disrupting the delicate balance in the towns that they visited. The disciples were going to go out and they were going to be misunderstood. They would find themselves unwelcome in many of the places that they went. He's already said that several times. We see that again, but Jesus says then, because of this, don't let it make you be afraid. Why? Because the truth will come out. The truth will get out. They will call you this. They will misunderstand you, but don't be afraid because what is true will come to the surface. Yes, many will not understand. They will not see you as messengers of peace and hope. They will see you as reminders of their sin. Uh, Your message will convict them. They won't like it. Instead of repenting, they'll persecute you. They'll either run you out of town or they'll run you up the flagpole. You're going to be persecuted. But Jesus says in verse 26, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This, the way this is written here is, is known as a divine passive. And that it, would, it means that it implies that God is the one who is performing these actions. So what is, what is revealed uh, will be revealed by God. What is made known is made known by God. And Jesus is saying to these men, you will be vindicated. Whether now or later, one day the truth will rise. It will come out. So don't fear the accusations. Don't worry about that. Don't, 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 don't let it stop you. you. You go out and you preach that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And they're going to accuse you of heresy and blasphemy. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're going to go out and you're going to proclaim the need to repent of sin and turn to Christ for salvation. And Because they love their sin and they love sitting in the darkness, they love their wickedness, they're going to reject you. They'll deny their sinful condition. They'll deny that Jesus is the way. But one day the truth will be known. Carson writes, the truth must emerge. The Gospel and its outworkings in the disciples may not now be visible to all, but nothing will remain hidden forever. And if the truth will emerge at the end, how wise to declare it fully and boldly now. We don't have any lights. Look at the next one here. Uh, is the, second, the second cause for fear is the physical pain that persecution is going to bring. Notice, there we go. Uh, the, these people are going to be opposed. They're going to be so greatly opposed to you and the message that you bring that they're going to kill you. This is a real fear, folks. You might die. And as we know from history, all, all but one of the disciples died. Well, all of them died. But all of them died except for John unnaturally. You might die. This is a real danger. This is a real thing to be afraid of. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. And I like how he says it because what he's saying is, What's the worst that can happen? Kill you? Well, yeah. But he says, all they can do is kill you. That's the only thing they can do. That's the limit. That's the extent of their ability. They can only kill you. I remember uh, one of my friends in Washington, his, his thing was, uh, he was, he's one of those kind of guys that he's, he doesn't, 
He's not afraid of talking to people or asking for different things. And his thing was, well, what are they going to do? Take away my birthday? And of course, and the answer is no. But Jesus is saying kind of the same thing. What are they going to do? Kill me? Is that the best you've got? All you can do is kill me? Well, yeah, they, they can kill me. It's going to hurt, right? That's usually why we fear death, because it hurts most of the time. But Jesus says you don't need to be afraid of these things and of the killers or of death itself. Why? Because all they can do is kill you. Look in verse number 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. All they can do is harm the body. They can kill the messenger, but they can't destroy him. And they can't silence the message. Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, For me, living is living for Christ. And dying is even better than that. Dying is gain. Think about that. In Paul's mind, death was not loss. It was gain. He wins either way. That's what Paul told the Philippians. If I stay here, I can live for Christ on the earth. I can serve Him. I can minister to you. But if I go to heaven and die as a martyr, I'll be with Christ. I win either way. It's great. For me to live is, is Christ and to die is gain. They might be able to kill your body, Jesus says. But they cannot harm your soul. So don't be afraid. And then the third thing he says there, and we go down. He says the third reason that, 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 that I see here that he would, that would cause the disciples to fear the persecution is being alone. Feeling like you're all by yourself. Feeling uncared for. Jesus was going to send them out on this short mission and for a time, they were going to be by themselves. And later, they would watch Him ascend into heaven with a promise to return. And they were going to be faced with feelings of loneliness. They're going to suffer a lot of difficult things. And there's the real, the real danger of feeling like you're doing this all by yourself. Think about how many, how few Christians there were in the world when Jesus went back to heaven. They didn't, they weren't living in the Bible belt at the time. Just their, their, their next door neighbors could have and might have tried to turn them in for what they would, what they believed. They're suffering all alone. Nobody cares about me. It's the same thing that Elijah felt back in 1 Kings 19, remember? Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you. He ran and he hid in fear. God meets him in the wilderness and he's in the mountain there and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's response is, I'm the only one left, God. They've all forsaken you. All of Israel is against you. I'm all you've got left now. There's no one else out here. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about you anymore, God, and nobody cares about me. This is a very real danger that the disciples were going to come up against. And Jesus knew that, and he wanted his disciples to know the truth. What's the truth? Don't think you're all alone because your Father sees. Your Father cares. He knows. Don't be afraid by thinking, I'm sending you out all by yourself. You're not Rambo. You're not going out to, to fight this war all by yourself. You will be seen. You will be known. You will be cared for. Don't believe it for one second that you're all alone because the first two fears are actual fears. Like, yes, you will be killed, some of you. And yes, you will be misunderstood. But here, no, you won't be alone. No, you won't feel like, or you might feel that way, but it's not true. Jesus uses an illustration here in verse 29 of, of sparrows to show them just how much God cares about them. He says, look in verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? A farthing there. It's the, it's the smallest coin that they had at the time. He says, and not one of them fall to the ground without apart from your father. 
but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, sparrows are small, little, little birds, very seemingly insignificant creatures, right? And, and what Jesus is saying here is you could buy two for a penny, or farthing. This, this, this word here that, uh, that is used, that we translate as, as penny, is, is to try to help us understand it was the lowest coin in their currency. It was about a sixteenth of a day's wage. Uh, one writer uh, calls them an appetizer. Sparrows. They were cheap. They were unimportant. Anybody could afford them. So as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm being compared to a, a little bird, a half a penny valued bird. Jesus says, your father cares for each one of them. No, no sparrow falls to the ground that God doesn't know about. And, and Jesus comforts us, if you want to call it that, in verse 31. He says, so don't be afraid. Fear not, therefore. Why? You're of more value than many sparrows. And I read that and I thought, that's not very encouraging. Because if I can buy a sparrow for a half a penny, I can buy two for a penny, many sparrows is still less than a buck. And you're worth more many sparrows. Like still less than a dollar, Jesus? I mean, really? Is that all it is? But see, the, 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 on the surface, it might not seem like a great, com- a great comparison, but the sparrow's worth and his significance is not how much of a price he brings at market. His worth and his significance comes from the amount of care and attention that the Father gives to him. And if God is going to invest that much consideration and care and attention into a, a bird that's worth half of a penny, His care for us is multiplied many times over. How much more does your Father care for you who are worth more than a bunch of birds? How much more will He care for creatures that were created in His image whom He has redeemed and called sons and daughters? If God shows that much care for the family pet, how much more does He care for His children? And then he says here that, that he, he knows the number of hairs on our head. It's an interesting, interesting question or thought there. He knows the number of hairs I have on my head. For some of you, that's pretty easy. We know the number of hairs you have on your head, right? I mean, you get zero, right? Or one big one that you just kind of looped around a bunch of times. But God keeps track of every single person in this room. He knows the number of hairs that you have on your head. Scientists say that when we're all born, we're all born with an average of 100,000 hair follicles. And then based on the color of your hair, that number changes. If you're a blonde, it's about 150,000. If you're a redhead, it's only about 90,000. Only 90,000 hairs. And then the brunettes and and, and people with black hair, they have about 110,000. 100,000 hairs. And then to complicate it, we lose about 100 of them every day. God knows the number. It's not a rounded number. God doesn't say, well, you have about 100,000 hairs. He knows the number of hairs you have on your head. He keeps track of that. You think, why would you keep track of how much hair I have? What difference does it make how much hair I have? It shows that God is that interested in you. He is that concerned. He's that invested into you that he knows, oh, yeah, he has X amount of hairs on his head. Oh, no, no, just lost two more. He's got this. And tomorrow he's going to lose this many and he's got this. He knows, he cares about something so small. Does anybody know how many hairs they have on their head? Have you kept track? Give a little log book? Lost two hairs. No, you don't, because it's not, it doesn't matter. But God, it matters to God. God keeps count of it all. So don't think you're alone out there. 
if God, who knows how many hairs you have, who collects the tears that we have in a bottle, who has written our names on His hand, if He is the one sending us out, you can rest assured He will see you. He will care for you. He knows what you're facing. And so to finish our time together, we just briefly look at these three counter-reactions that Jesus puts forth. Instead of fearing, rather than being afraid, do this instead. He says first in verse 27, instead of being afraid of being misunderstood and mistreated, boldly proclaim the good news. Go out, and instead of being afraid that they're not going to understand me, they're going to misrepresent me, just go out and be bold anyways. In in, uh, in New Testament times, uh, one commentator writes that here that uh, the, the way that a, a rabbi would teach his student to do public speaking was that he would stand beside the disciple and he would whisper in his ear what the what should be said. And so whatever the rabbi or the teacher whispered to the student, the student would then tell the people. And that's what Jesus is saying there in verse number uh, 27 there. He says, uh, verse number 27, look there. He says, um, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. When you stand before the governors and kings, don't worry about what you're going to say. Say what I've told you to say. He says there, and uh, he told us back in verse number 20, that I'm going to speak through you. So don't worry about it. Don't be afraid of them. Boldly proclaim. Be bold in your preaching. And publicly proclaim everything I've told you. Now up to this point, Everything that Jesus had taught, not everything, but a lot of what Jesus had taught was reserved for His disciples. Specifically, this chapter right here was for the twelve. But from this point, He was telling them, go out and say everything that I've told you. John MacArthur writes that Christians are not elite defenders of man-made secrets, but bold proclaimers of God-given truth. And we, as the body of Christ, are given the task of sharing the Gospel. That is, all the truths of God's Word to all the people. The Gospel is not some well-kept secret. We guard it. Guardians of the Gospel. No, we're sharers. We're spreaders of the Gospel. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to go into all the world and preach the Gospel and to make disciples of all nations. And He says at the end of there, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Proclaim it on the housetops. Second thing, he says, you're going to counteract fear with fear. Don't be afraid. Fear. But it's where who you fear. In trading one fear for another, one that is unhealthy for one that is healthy and wise. He says at the end of verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As limited as men's power in only hurting the body. God is infinitely more powerful than that. He can judge both your body and your soul. Not even Satan can stand in His way. The most powerful resistance that there is to the mission that He sends us out on cannot ultimately do any of the things that God can do. In the words of the preacher at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, he says, This is the whole duty of man. He says, fear God, keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Just fear God. Hugh Latimer was an Anglican bishop back in the first part of the 16th century. And uh, one day he was preaching 
and he knew that King Henry VIII was present. He was in the audience, and you know, you don't want to upset the king with what you say. And history, history, the story goes that he told himself, "Remember that the king is here. Be careful what you say." But then he thought about it and said, "But remember that the King of Kings is here. So be careful what you do not say." History tells us that eventually he was burned at the stake faithfully preaching God's Word because he feared God rather than men. Here's the thing. They only killed his body. Couldn't do anything more. They could only kill his body. God is sovereign over all things. He puts up. He sets down. He creates life. He destroys it. He alone has the power to judge, both in this life and in the next. And He alone is to be feared. And then the last response that we see here is to not only to fear God, but to trust Him. Because God is sovereign over all. The, the, the disciples aren't being, are going out afraid that God is going to send them to hell. They're going out realizing that I am being sent by the one who has all the authority. And because the, the illustration here with the sparrows and the, the numbers of my head, I can go out and know that He cares for me. More than I can imagine. More than I care to care for me. God cares for me. If I don't think it's big enough a deal for me to keep track of how many hairs I have on my head, and yet God does, and He doesn't slack off on any of the other things that He does to care about me, that's how much more God cares about me than even I care about myself. D.A. Carson asks, if God's providence is so all-embracing that not even a sparrow drops from the sky apart from the will of God, Cannot that same God be trusted to extend His providence over Jesus' disciples? He says God's sovereignty over the tiniest detail should give us confidence that He also superintends the larger matter. So yes, persecution is going to come. But there's no reason to fear it. It doesn't have to immobilize us. It doesn't have to paralyze us and cripple us. Rather, we can be bold in our witness. We can be confident in the provision of our Father can live with healthy fear and reverence for the One who is over all the circumstances of our life. Not only is God the sovereign Lord who holds in His hand the power of life and death, He's our Father. He sees us. He knows us. He cares for us. We should fear Him. We should trust Him. We should submit to the commands of our Lord. We should desire to emulate Him and be like Him. And we should rest in His care. So that ultimately we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my help. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Trusting God. Confident in His care, His provision. And not being afraid.